This is Times Like Now, and I'm Trevor Collins. The grunge music scene of the 1990s, without question, was born in Seattle, Washington. Along with the bands and the labels, one radio station stands out. 107.7 The End helped launch the Seattle sound. My guest today, Marco Collins, was vital to bringing grunge to the radio waves. Today on Times Like Now. Howdy, Marco. How are you this evening? Thank you for uh, being on the show. Yeah, thank you, Trevor. I appreciate you having me on. Right. So I'm going to go back to my earliest memory of hearing you on the radio at the end. Coming from Portland, me and friends uh, would come up to Seattle, see shows. We're always looking forward to when are we in the zone? When can, when can, when can we get, this was obviously before, before internet. Right. And we were always go right to the end as soon as we crossed into where the range was you know we're like what's the latest what's the end playing now what's what's going on in seattle always look forward to it that was my introduction and that would have been i don't know 90 95 were you there then? yeah yeah we yeah. were going full force at that time yeah and i remember even earlier than that couple couple uh road trips and tell me how long had you been there and how did the end come about from where you were sitting? Well, so by 95, I, I had been there uh, four years already. I started, I was the second DJ on the station. Um, Day number two that the station signed on in 91, the station just hit our 30th anniversary, which just really makes me feel old. Um, But I came from San Diego. I was working well, specifically, I came from L.A. I was working for a record label for about eight months prior to the end signing on. Signing on. Um, and prior to that, I worked in San Diego for the same radio company that put the end on in Seattle um, that ran a station called 91X in San Diego. And they called me when I was at the label uh, and said, do you want to go to Seattle? Do you want to be music director of this station? And and do nights. And I was on a plane two weeks later, never having been to Seattle in my life, got on a plane with my suitcases packed and, uh, you know, arrived here in Seattle and, um, man, what a ride. Yeah. So, okay. So I, your background being in music, you were well-established in, in the scene before you took this job. Okay. That was my question is how did you go from from zero to, to, to what you went to, to skyrocket so quickly. So you were well-connected. I mean, I guess I was well-connected. I was, I, I mean, you were not a greenhorn coming out of college to a radio station and then, you know, working through you, you had a, some, some base. Uh, yeah. I didn't have a base, but that base was still very idealistic. And, um, you know, I did come from college radio and the station that I was working at in San Diego called 91X, all I was doing was the specialty shows. I started a local music show um, that's still on the air. It's the longest running local music show in U.S. history. Um, still on the air at the same station. And wow. um, So, yeah, I was doing that, but I was always that kid. I was the Sunday night late kid, you know, that was playing all new music and local music and had bands playing on a show. I was, uh, I had a base when I went to work for the record label. I think I probably learned more about radio than I did working in radio. Um, 
only because I did promotion and I talked to radio stations all over the country. And uh, that gave me a real sort of perspective on things. So I don't think they would have hired me to do the job if I had only worked for 91X. No, um, certainly those other experiences make you a, a more qualified well, music yeah, director. Full-formed uh, candidate, as yes. it were. So, yeah, when I came up, I was slightly connected. I knew the Soundgarden guys. My roommate in San Diego had promoted their shows, so I'd been to dinner with those guys. I knew Matt Cameron real well. I knew Eddie Vedder uh, because he was in a San Diego band that I used to play. Uh, so a lot of these people... Um, I was familiar with, but not on a let's hang out basis. So when I got here, uh, the only two people I I felt like I really knew were, you know, Matt Cameron from Soundgarden and now Pearl Jam and uh, Kathy Fennessy, who ran a station called KCMU that later became KEXP. Okay. Okay. Yeah, those were the so, only people I knew. So I got off the plane and I was like, "I'm here." So uh, walking into friends. walking into Seattle, as you know, here's a new playground for you to explore local. You know, coming from this local program you you'd been doing down south, program director Seattle and a fresh bed of music, untapped and unheard, for you to reach out to and to get into the local scene upon must have been amazing. Oh, it was. And I, it was funny, I immediately, or not immediately, probably a couple months, maybe even a year after the station started, I took over the local music show, which is kind of a bold move from, you know, from somebody who's from San Diego. But Californian. Yeah, California. Yeah. Uh, I poured myself into it and I got to know the bands and I went out to shows and I went to record stores and bought records. And I really feel like in order to sort of be successful as a station in any community, you kind of have to give the station back over to the community. And I just always believed that and um, and kind of did it when I got here. I got to know everybody. Um, I invited Sub Pop on the radio to talk about what records they had coming out and the history of the label. I invited Calvin Johnson from K Records. I invited Kill Rock Stars. I had all these folks come on the station and just talk about their labels. And, you know, I had been a uh, college music director, and so I got all these records from people. I was very familiar with the Seattle scene when I moved here. It was already popping, you know, like... I remember seeing Mudhoney in San Diego going, oh, my God, this band's going to be the biggest friggin' band in the world. And when I moved up to Seattle, I still thought that. I thought they would be bigger than Nirvana. And um, it didn't exactly go down <laughs> like that, but I'm still a huge Mudhoney fan, nevertheless. Sure. That is an interesting, because uh, I've done that growing up music oh this band they're called guns and roses i was listening to them before anybody else uh, mother love bone i was listening to mother love bone these guys are going to be they're going to get signed and yeah i was always in that these guys are going to be huge and sometimes you're right sometimes you're not right and mud right. honey Absolutely. yeah yeah i've had that kind of kind of predictive or hopefully predictive attitude about oh god uh, some other bands that 
nobody would even know their name. I'm like, these guys yeah. are going to be great. So well, um, I, was lucky. I was really lucky in that the choices that I made um, when I came to Seattle, whether they were programming decisions or, or otherwise all ended up being decent, decent guesses, <laughs> you know, like, you know, when you are playing records um, from different bands, you're trying to pick the best music for your community. And I would play a ton of local bands, but I also dug deep into just hits, you know, records like those weird left wing records that nobody thinks nobody thinks of for commercial radio. And I felt like these records deserve to be heard on commercial radio as well. So um, thank God I have more hits than I have misses (laughs) because my misses were pretty big. That's always the goal. So, of course, the the big um, the big moment was what happened to Seattle and what happened to you and the station when Nevermind went through the roof. What was yeah, that like? It was crazy, man. And you know, Seattle is a very small town in a lot of ways. It felt very small town. I got to know the players very quickly. We'd all be drinking beer over it. Nils Bernstein's house and then go out to see the Melvins or, or whatever band. And, uh, it felt very, very small. It smelled, it felt like a, a small community. And the first two records I was handed as music director of the station, uh, were Pearl Gems 10 and Nevermind from Nirvana. Wow. And so, you know, I knew the scene was hopping. I knew that things were going on. I was excited about it. I had no idea what I was stepping into. Um, and we didn't really have an idea of how big it was going to get. We could see it here in Seattle. We could see the reaction to the songs that we played on the radio. Um, but I don't think anybody expected it to be as massive and as no. uh, sort of iconic how could you? as it ended up being. How how could anybody uh, have seen anything like that? No, I, I don't think. I mean, not on that scale. Maybe on a you know because right. on a small scale, sure, yeah, this is really good. But I mean, well, the radio station, fashion, and everything else that came behind it was yeah. un, unforeseen. The, that was just I mean, capitalism, I guess. Really, yeah. The company that I worked for, Noble Broadcasting, wouldn't have signed on a radio station in a market that didn't have something going on. You know, so um, they weren't dummies about it, but nobody predicted it was going to be that big. And I I, that first year was incredible. And we really didn't know what I'll, I'll tell you. It was one of those things that I didn't appreciate in the moment enough. I look back and I'm like, wow, you were just rolling in the moment, like, you know, I got to be good friends with Kurt Cobain's family. And, uh, you know, when he was on tours, mom would call the station and ask me what was going on with her own kid, you know, um, because, you know, you don't call mom when you're on tour in Rome. Um, right. You're probably not enough. Right. And right. Kurt's sister, Kim, became a good friend of mine. We kind of became um, almost a, a microphone uh from the bands to their to their fans and family um in a lot of ways we were that connector um to the community and it was exciting it was 
again, when you're in the middle of it, you don't realize how important it's going to be viewed later. Like I was just running as fast as I could, basically (laughs) trying to keep up with everything, trying to create a radio station that would honor this music and do some really creative and different things. I didn't think about that much. I, I was, I think I was so idealistic at that time. Like the first year at the end, I think I quit three times. Um, because I was just a little diva. Like, you know, they, my boss and I didn't exactly see eye to eye for a while. Uh, it took a while for him to trust me and me to trust him. He was very traditional, came from radio, a radio background. Um, and I was very idealistic and I came from a college radio background and a, you know, commercial alternative background that let me play whatever the hell I wanted. So I felt like there's no reason the station can't be uh, sort of a college radio mentality with 50,000 watts. That was uh, that was always my goal. Why can't we play this awesome, weird seven inch from the poster children? Uh, so I learned a lot in the first year. Um, you know, to me, I was trying to create something larger than life with the station. I wanted to create something that was lifestyle. And I felt like, well, you're living the lifestyle. So, you know, try to try to invite the community to be a part of it, uh, to be a part of the station, to be a part of the programming, um, to come on the show on the radio shows and play live and play their friends bands and, you know, come in on a Friday night. We used to have bands come in and just play quarters on the air and just like you know just sure, have a good time sure. and be stupid and irreverent um but it was good man I, I i look back at that time and i wish again that i had more i was just going with it man i was going with the flow i wasn't documenting like i wish i had you know i look back at those times and i think god if you had only had photos of this moment or that moment or audio of this because yeah that's that's the kind insane. of thing yeah missed you missed that one if if only that would have been that would have been fascinating and maybe you would have been making movies doing that now with all that all that material but you know so i've always been curious right. Right. <laughs> yeah. where did you okay you were in the in san diego area what kind of jobs did you have to get into radio? Did you volunteer or did you go to a school program or did you just jump in both feet? How did you get into radio? Well, it started real early. It started when I was in high school and I um, did my first radio show when I was 16. I used to listen to a community radio station in Northern California called KVMR And they had a punk rock show on the weekends that was like 2 to 6 a.m. And I used to listen to that show religiously and tape it. Uh, And then me and my friends would listen to it all week after school. Um, So I I volunteered. I had to take classes and I volunteered for the station. Got to do kind of my first on-air show late, late at night. You know, I was the kid that was sitting in the back of the room handing the DJ records um, I got on the mic twice, but, but I was 16 years old and I was always sort of obsessed with radio. And then, you know, I went to college. 
Uh, and I got involved with the college radio station. Within a year, I was music director of the college station. And um, then I was working at a record store at the same time. So I was working at a record store. I was doing the college radio thing. And um, somebody came in from the commercial station in town, 91X, and offered me an uh-huh. internship. And it was an internship answering phones for the show that I was obsessed with. They had that Sunday night show called Listen to This. And they played Bauhaus and Susie and the Banshees and The Cure and The Pixies and all of the bands that I loved. So I got to go answer phones for that show. Um, And I ended up being at 91X for, I think, five and a half years. Um, You know, I definitely paid my dues for a long time working for minimum wage at that station. But yeah, I, I feel like everything sort of just flowed my way at that point. You know, um, 91X kept promoting me and I started my own local music show and I started doing this for them and I did that for them. And it almost, it almost got to the point that college was sort of irrelevant at that point because I was getting these internships and getting promoted. I was in the business. So uh, I started sort of not paying attention to college so much and really just focused on, uh, you know, my internship. Um, And again, I was there five years. I had a little bit of a mishap with the station where I played something that was deemed inappropriate. Uh, And they... um, they had to, uh, they didn't fire me, but they suspended me for a month without pay. And I, at that point I was like, okay, I'm done with radio. I, I'd rather go work for a label. So I started kind of poking around and ended up getting a job at Relativity uh, Records doing promotion. And at that time they had My Bloody Valentine. Um, uh, they had a band called Godflesh. That was a real heavy band, a British band, uh, sort of a, a Brit pop band called the Mock Turtles. Uh oh. So I was doing go? promotion for like eight months before I came to the end. Okay. Sorry, I thought it. Yeah, I can hear you. Continue. I, I thought we. I thought we lost audio. I'm still Please here. continue. Um, can you hear me? Oh, right. Okay. Okay. No, I was just saying. So I, the, I, I like I said, you know, again, back after in, that, and then being in Portland uh, at that time, ninety one, ninety two, is when we started making trips up to see Pearl Jam and to go to to shows and to raves in Seattle. And again, listening to your program and to the end in general was a highlight. Always look forward to it because a lot of those bands would play out of Seattle and then do the I five corridor pass through Portland on their way South. So we got to see a lot of those shows uh, in the Portland area, but coming up to Seattle and seeing them yeah. in their hometown was always, Absolutely. was always the goal. And I remember once coming up, we yeah. were going to get tickets for Pearl jam in Portland, their last small club shows before they blew up. They're going to play the, it was the Roseland at the time. And uh, well, it's, they're going to be playing in Seattle. Let's go. So we drove up to Seattle. This was there going to be an outside, an outdoor show, right. but something wasn't done right with the permitting, and the show never happened. And we were so disappointed. So we very quickly got got back in the car, drove back to Portland. Oh. By then, the Portland show was sold oh, out. Shoot, and never. Oh, 
and never got to see them in that small venue at the Roseland is what I wanted. Oh, of course, no, I saw man, them, you know, sucks. in 93, uh, Blind Melon Pearl Jam and Neil Young at Portland Meadows, which, you know, was in, was incredible too. But something about the small club venue that I really feel like I missed out on that one. Oh, that's um, but I digress. The lots of shows that I missed, lots of shows that I made uh, as well. You can't be in two right. places at yeah. once. Sometimes as well, when there's two shows going on, one in Seattle, one in Portland, which do you do? So uh, that was fun, fun times. And, and uh, the radio was a big part of that. I'm a radio geek uh, from way back as well. Now, um, when did, when did things kind of go south at the end? Because when did you leave the end? And Well, I left the end in so different capacities. I quit being a music director in 96. I uh, stopped my air shift and left completely, or my main air shift in 97. And I continued doing The Young and the Restless um, for until 98. Okay. So okay. I left now. I saw the the, air, the uh, documentary that was been made about you. Uh, remind me the the name. Yep, I just wanted to hear that from you. The glamour and the squalor. Uh, I saw that at a film festival. The glamour uh, and the squalor. Amazing film uh, in Portland, Oregon. Uh, the Portland Film Festival. Yeah. Which film were you? Oh, I was supposed to be at that. Uh, my father, yeah, I had oh, to cancel. Marco, I'm so sorry. I'm um, going to that festival that. because my father got cancer and passed shortly thereafter. So, yeah, I mean, oh it, my god, it, it happened fast, man. It happened from diagnosis to death was five days. So, um, yeah, it was. We think that he probably wasn't owning up to all the symptoms that he had been having. He had some other health issues. So I think it was misdiagnosed uh, as well, but yeah, that's the reason I didn't end up going to that Portland show is I had to be in LA or in. No, uh, of course, some California. things are obviously more important than a, a movie premiere for like sure. The night um, but in that movie, movie so. I did get to learn quite a bit about, you know, about your life and, and some of the challenges you've yeah. gone through. Um, I understand you are clean and sober now. Congratulations for, for some time now, in fact, obviously. Yes. What has that yeah, been like? Has yeah, that been a big, be was that a big years, challenge September 18th. for you? Yeah. Oh, hell yeah. It's still a big challenge. Every day is a big challenge. It's, you know, you don't have a, a, a wicked yeah. drug and alcohol habit. Obviously not an off, uh, an on off switch. It's not it that easy. Being a big challenge to kick. Um, it's, um, yeah, it wasn't that easy. And, you know, the funny thing is you get rid of the alcohol and that's not the, you get rid of the alcohol and drugs. And then you got to deal with, you know, the mental health issues that I already have, you know, like that I've been numbing out from for so long. So this last four years is me trying to get my feet on the ground, trying to make sure that it sticks this time. Um, because I would, 
you know, my big, uh, my big thing is I'd go to rehab, get clean. And, uh, and the longest I ever lasted was like a year and seven months. So this is hands down the longest I've ever stayed sober. And I'm kind of proud of it because I definitely worked for it. No, absolutely. And I mean, again, congratulations. That's, Thank you very I'm, much. I'm glad you're doing well. Now, I, I, I've only got a couple minutes left, and I wasn't sure if I wanted to bring up the the kid off the cover of the Nirvana record. Sure. I would rather hear about KEXP and your show there. And what kind of music are you playing? What night? You got any oh, names God, I should I'm know about totally Seattle bands you that you're you know, um, really into? A uh, couple anyway? Yeah, I could email them to you later. There's there's so many great bands. The great thing about KEXP is they let me do whatever I want to do. How weird it is, how off the cuff it is, how last minute it is. They let me do it. Um, and I haven't worked at a place like that in a long, long time. And, um, you know, I feel like KEXP is sort of, it's forging new territory. And I'm really proud to work there. Um, I feel like they are becoming more than a radio station, really. It's kind of an arts collective in a way that's become a little bit more international. Uh, and again, I'm lucky to, I'm lucky to work there. No, it is, uh, outstanding. Um, I have to give them this, my favorite piece of radio I've ever heard in my whole life. The most amazing piece of radio production. I'm sure you know it. The 12 hours of Beastie Boys, Paul's Boutique, where they took every song, every song out of every sample. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing piece of production. Not afraid to go deep. Yeah. Well, when when is your uh, program on the air there for everybody listening? KEXP.org? Yeah, KEXP.org. I'm on uh, all kinds of different shifts. I'm a filling guy. Um, my regular shift is uh, Thursday nights from 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. Uh, Pacific Standard Time, obviously. It's interesting because when you're on late like that, uh, KXP has a huge following in Europe. So I have all these folks that are getting up in the morning over there that are regular listeners now. <laughs> You know, I have a guy in Germany that gets up every day before he goes to work and listens all day at work. I have a family uh, that listens in Japan. I have it's it's really interesting. All you know, sort of KEXP's reach around the world and how many yeah. people the station actually touches. Well, you know, honestly, in a lot of ways, Marco, you and the end put Seattle on the map. I mean, literally, you and that radio station at that time is why a lot of these phenomenons like <laughs> like Nirvana is still making, you know, making waves and, and why the radio station uh, has such a legendary stance. So it's yeah, we were definitely a lot of it's on your hat. I, thank you. We were definitely a part of it. I, you know, there was a lot of people involved in making that happen. Um, and I'm honored to have been, you know, front and center for that entire thing. It was, it was a moment I'll never forget. And um, I've been working on sort of a new movie um, for the last couple of years too. I should have told you that earlier. I forgot about that. What's the title um, of this or what's the expected? You know, we have a working title. We have a working title, but I don't want to tell you what it is because I don't like it. Um, it's uh, it's based off my my story. 
Um, so I don't know what we're going to call it, but, uh, you know, it's going to be a feature narrative film, independent film, uh, with, you know, an actor playing me. Um, I imagine we could find you on Instagram and Facebook, Marco Collins. Absolutely. At DJ Marco Collins on Instagram and, uh, on Twitter, I'm at not Marco Collins. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much again. It's been great talking with you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Trevor. Good night. Good night. Past episodes of Times Like Now can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you to the letter J, Cody Robertson, for original music. My name is Trevor Collins. I can be reached, Trevor, at timeslikenow.com. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to speaking with you next time.